Welcome to the Liberation Lab podcast, insights and interviews for the disruptive educator. I'm honored to have my guest. I'm going to let her introduce herself. So why don't you tell the people who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Oh, on the spot. All right. <laughs> well, hi, everyone. My name is Caroline J. Sumlin. I'm honored to be here on the Liberation Lab podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm an author slash writer slash content creator slash homeschool mom um, slash coffee obsessed person because <laughs> I just feel like that's I, it's like a it's like a, a like a third job is just like finding coffee shops and testing them like that's just kind of like what brings me little pockets of joy when I'm losing my mind so it's 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 in there <laughs> slash certified rule breaker um because I consider myself a disruptor in this world um and let's see that's what I do why do I do it um that's such a loaded question, but essentially because in my search for freedom mm -hmm. and finally loving myself and finding myself worthy, mm -hmm. I realized that our entire world, our, but specifically our society here in America slash Western society, did not have freedom and was also literally screaming to find themselves worthy. I used to think it was a me problem and I realized it is a societal problem. And when I realized that, that's what drove the work that I do. That's what drives the work that I do every single day because we are humans and we are so worthy. It's about time that we stick it to society that is trying to tell us otherwise. The idea of being worthy, the idea of self-efficacy, mm -hmm. um, I think about it on multiple fronts. One, I think about it personally as a recovering perfectionist, as a recovering people pleaser. Mm -hmm. I think about it as you know the educators that I have the honor of of serving alongside them feeling like this year's had its ups and downs and I don't know if I can do this or, and then, you know, that whole aspect of just being an educator and self-efficacy. Yes. I think about it in roles of just being a husband, being a, a wife, a mother, a father. You know, the idea of worthiness, I think, permeates so much of everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And so my question then is, what are some of the reasons that, whether it be from your personal experience, work with others, what are some of the reasons you think people struggle so much with feeling like they're worthy? Mm, because society, modern day society, which is built, you know, when I, when I consider modern day society, I consider present day. And then I, you know, but take that back um, to essentially the formation of what we, how we got to where we are today as far as present day is concerned. So kind of like anywhere between, I would say like the enlightenment era to the form, the, to the beginning of colonization to, mm -hmm. you know, the formation of what we live in today. Right. Um, I believe that the way that modern society was built on creating a hierarchy of humanity is one of one of the main roots mm -hmm. for why we feel that we are unworthy. However, you take it a little bit deeper and ask yourself, well, why did we as humans create such a world? Because we mm -hmm. did this to ourselves as humans. Why as humans where did we go wrong in that? Why have we always struggled with seeing each other as worthy 
which is really rooted in seeing ourselves as worthy, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if you're if you're someone of faith, then you can trace that through faith, um, which I am, but I but I don't um, I don't claim to be a theologian, so I don't go super deep into that. But that mm-hmm. that there's a root there as well. Mm-hmm. But if you really look at how as humans we're constantly craving power and control, right? Where does that come from? And, th- and it comes from many different things, but but a lot of that comes from feeling like in order to feel important, in order to feel like we are something, we have to have power and control and 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 domineer over somebody else to make mm-hmm. ourselves feel better, to make ourselves feel powerful. When in reality, all that does is just make nobody feel, it makes us all feel worse. And you can trace through history how people groups have done this to ourselves, thus creating cultures where different cultures throughout the world, and in some way, shape, or form, this does exist. I'm not saying that that in Western society where we are like exclusive to behaving this way, it's just in Western society, white supremacy has been the tool that has been used yeah. in most recent times. And that's where that's where we are today. So that's when I when I talk about the racial hierarchy and colonization, I'm talking about that's just happens to be the most latest recent tool that has been used in our society that has created our culture. Right. So it starts that th- those are those deep seated roots mm-hmm. that thus grew into this huge rotten tree but it's like but it still grows you know what i'm saying it's still it's still like has life in it but it's like rotting um and it just keeps growing and growing and growing almost like an uncontrollable weed of some sort um and so you've got those roots which are in the power and the control and the greed and, and that can be traced through religion that can be traced through faith that can be traced through other things and those planted roots of okay most recently colonization and creating a, a hierarchy based on the supremacy of whiteness and anti-blackness, thus creating a society with different institutions that followed that hierarchy that now have a world of us essentially chasing our worth by seeing a standard that is constantly unattainable that we try to reach. And it happens in every single way. You name a corner of society and we're trying to chase a standard there, whether that be in education, we see that all the time, for the most part, in the beginning of life, we don't question it. We're told this is the way that it is. This is what you have to do to be successful, to be worthy. You've got to get the grades. You've got to get the GPA. You have to, if we're talking about education, you have to pass a standardized test. You have to be seen as excellent. You have to be seen as, as it meets expectations and exceeds expectations. You really mm-hmm. got to exceed expectations to be seen um, worthy of something, to be seen as gifted or to be seen as worthy of being given a shot or whatever the case may be, Right. Um, all of that was built in something. Where did these standards come from? Why did we create those standards? If you trace the history, those standards are rooted directly in racism. Mm. So because of racism, because of Western, um, because of white supremacy, it's created all of this, these now cultural norms that we don't question. We just fall in line when we go to, when we go to school and we then end up hating ourselves, thinking we're not enough. And then, then that's expressed in multiple different ways based on the person that could be in the recovering perfectionist like you and me that could be in the 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 student that checks out and says forget this i'm not worth anything i can't do it that can be in in students that you know turn to abusive behavior self abusive behaviors there's so many different things that's education but it's in every institution it's in the beauty it's in health it's in it's in corporate 
right? Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. It's in it's in the entertainment industry, and that's uh, that's my my long winded answer that has fascinated me so far. This is the conclusion that I came to, and this is why I wrote my book. So, so since we're here, <laughs> plug the book. What? Tell us about <laughs> your book, uh, the title, um, and. Um, you know, it's kind of been the guide, the signpost, the guidepost, if you will, for 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 our conversation. We're kind of framing it around this this work that is coming out uh, that I have pre-ordered. So I'm very excited <laughs> to get my hands on my copy. Uh, but tell people about your book, your title, um, and things like that. Well, I'm so grateful that you've pre-ordered. Um, the title of my book is "We'll All Be Free: How a Culture of White Supremacy Devalues Us and How We Can Reclaim Our True Worth." And in that book, I use historic evidence and facts, not in like a super boring textbook kind of way, but in a super personable, we're having coffee kind of way to show us how, due to the way that society has been built, this is why we have the culture that we have and then what to do about it, how to break free from that personally and how to begin breaking free from that as a society. Um, And especially... And I, I start. I actually start the book in a, in a certain way, where I actually begin talking about our individual trauma, because we all have some sort of trauma in our lives. And a lot of times, we like to stop there and think, okay, well, what happened to me? This is why I don't feel like I'm worthy. If you would have asked that question to most other people about why do people not feel like they're worthy, they'd be like, well, when I was little, someone told me I was dumb. When I was little, someone did this. Da 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 da. da right. Um, or, you know, this, my parents divorced or someone abused me or I was adopted. That's me. That's my story, um, <laughs> which we have in common. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but, but we stop there. We stop with the individual and think, oh, that's that thing happened to me. So I don't feel like I'm worthy. So I have to try to figure out how to undo that thing in myself. But that's actually not that's actually not getting us very far. Because let's take it, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing when we put Band-Aids on things, that's what we do as, 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 as humans, as a society, we like to put a Band-Aid on it yep. in, instead of actually figure out how to heal the wound and where did the wound come from in the first place? Yeah. You know, it's like when, when you get um, a chronic illness, like I was um, diagnosed with Hashimoto's two years ago and I could just be like, all right, well, that happened to me, I can just take some supplements or take some medication and just figure out how to move forward. Or I can figure out where did that come from? Why did my body begin attacking itself in this way? Mm-hmm. Right? It's mm-hmm. the same thing here. So when you get to our, your individual wounds and traumas, you, you can actually more than likely trace those back to even white supremacy. What is it that has caused marriages to struggle the way that they do. You can trace it back to white supremacy. What is it that is causing so many families, particularly black and brown families, to be separated and 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 be placed into homes rather 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 than families being supported to raise the children they gave birth to? You can trace it back to white supremacy, right? Patriarchy, misogyny, all of those other um systems of oppression you can, in our society, I understand that a lot of these have existed before white supremacy, but in our society, they're traced back to white supremacy because that's how they've been used in our society. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I actually do a lot of personal connecting in the book and help people understand how their individual traumas and wounds are connected to white supremacy and then how white supremacy culture essentially adds salt to that, right? Mm-hmm. So you have your, your maybe it's, you're someone that struggled with your body image. But you think it's just because that your, you know, your mom 
um, talked down to you about your body and was constantly, you know, um, telling you that you needed to watch your weight and watch your calories. Okay, well, where did she get that from? Well, you trace back the roots of body image and, and diet culture, you can trace that back to white supremacy and racism, where white women were told that in order to um, essentially save their race and, and well represent their, waist, their, their race, excuse me, they had to be thin, they had to be thin, they had to be skinny, because to be fat was to look and act like a black woman who was a mammy, who was, you know, illiterate, who was worthless, Right was why we fear the black body. So it's all of it is connected. Yeah. But we don't take it back that far. We just think, well, I have this issue. My mom did this to me. And you stop there. And then you wonder why you actually don't ever get full clarity and why you continue to struggle with this thing for so for for the remainder of your life because you don't know the truth behind where it came from. You are establishing a a process for for healing and for freedom for the folks who are listening, but you are repeating a phrase that some who might be listening might misinterpret. Mm. You are saying white supremacy. So I'm going <laughs> to ask you a question because we've been rocking for a while. So I already know. Yes. But when you say white supremacy, do you mean white people? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's like one of those moments. When, I'm sorry. I'm going to answer the question, but we're, I, I was so because I didn't I didn't explain this in my introduction. I'm a former educator. I'm a former public school educator. I educated for five years in special education, so I already know the deal. And you know how when you have like a guest presenter in your classroom and you want your 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 students to like learn something, so you yeah. ask like, why don't you like raise your hand? And they're like, Miss Snowden. That's my that was my maiden name. Yeah. What's your question? And you're like, tell me. Da 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 da. da. Yeah, one of those really like staged questions so that Absolutely. they teach on the moment. That was it. That's 100%. what you did. 100%. 100%. Um, no, I don't mean white people. Um, white supremacy is, I, I hate that it is such a controversial thing. I understand that it's a controversial thing because when you, when we, when we've been taught about what white supremacy is, we've been taught that it is the the white extremism that historically and presently exists, you know, whether that be um, the KKK or in the 90s, the skinheads and and now what we see today with the Proud Boys and and whoever the other groups are, because really, are they really worth being named? No, the 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 um, the idiots that, you know, marched on the uh, state capitol on Mother's Day with their, you know, their masks on um, whoever they were. That's what you think. Right. Mm -hmm. And. Um, and once racism was illegal, quote unquote, um, and it became uncool to be racist, and I put all these things in quotes because no one stopped being racist. They just stopped doing it outwardly because they didn't want to lose their job or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that, that became such like a hush-hush thing. And it became you have to present yourself as being good, friendly white people because you never want to seem like you don't like those coloreds. Um, so that's why when we talk about white supremacy now, white people feel like they're being attacked. But white supremacy is the term that we use to define how specifically our society was built. 
Because if you look at the structures of our society, and by say, when I say structures, I mean everything from the Constitution and Declaration of Independence to individual institutions, the institution of chattel slavery, the institution of um, the Black Codes, the institution of Jim Crow, the institution of education, the institution of health, the institution of um, media, any, any institution, housing, the institution, the economic institution, these are all institutions, business institutions, the banking institutions, you name an institution. And right. you look historically as to how those institutions were built. They were built strategically to ensure that white, that yes, in this case, white people were at the top of the social ladder. Always. They had more. They, they, it was designed to ensure that white people had more money, more opportunity and and could even even once illegal could still separate themselves in a de facto sort of way from black and brown people. That is white supremacy. It is there is no denying the existence of this because you can look in in the history of any institution and you can see evidence of laws and homeowners associations that wouldn't allow black people to move in you know and i mean and these, and these are some of the more broad things we talk about like redlining but you can even look in i i would um, encourage you to look into if you work for um, a corporation that happens to have been around for quite some time look into the history of their bylaws and look into their hiring practices prior to a certain date and, 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 and even be surprised at how recent those things probably have even changed or maybe haven't even changed. So, yes, that is white supremacy. That's why we say it's, it's a systemic thing. Does that mean that all white people are socioeconomically at more advantage than black people individually? No. Or, or, or people of color? Absolutely not. But as a whole... Do we see that exist? Yes. And it's not even just socioeconomic. Look at any sort of statistic yep. between the racial groups and you will see strong disparities with most likely the black people, specifically us, um, being at the bottom of that. When you look at any sort of health rate, when you look at any sort of death rate, when you look at suicide rates, mental health rates, education, all of the, why do those gaps exist? They did not just get there because for whatever reason you all have convinced yourselves that black people are in are inferior you know Absolutely. so yes that is white supremacy but no it does not mean all white people all white people all white people that's not what we're saying white supremacy culture is the culture that we live in okay it's it's our dominant standard american culture let's be real let's call it what it is that was created as a result of the institutions and structures and economic policies and everything else that were put in place because they were put in place on a foundation of white supremacy. So you, you don't get a culture without those things. Like any culture has to be, has to come from somewhere. It doesn't just happen by accident. Right. So that's mm -hmm. why we have a culture of white supremacy. And while many would like to sugarcoat it and just call it dominant culture and take the white out of it, that's still erasing history. That still does not get us to the root of what's going on. It still ignores the truth. And yeah. we get nowhere when we ignore the truth. As you were talking, the thing that was popping up in my mind was how repeatedly folks like MLK would tell America that you have to expose the, the blister, the diseased part of American society expose it to the sun so it could be 
exposed and healed so that we can move forward. He would consistently remind people like James Ball, when you see him in the back, Uncle Jimmy, <laughs> they would they continuously put America on notice like you need to you need to figure out why you're doing these things. Right. Right. Why did you create? Like, I love when when James Baldwin is like the thing that white Americans have to do is figure out why they created the nigger. Because hmm. I'm not him. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's it. Like, mm. And so to juxtapose that now, because now we're, we're still in these yet to be United States with folks like Ron DeSantis, who was signing law after law to ban DEI from institutions to stop. I mean, his war on Disney that he's failing. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of these things, there seems to be a, a very strategic push for us to hide minimize um you know and control alt delete our way out of seeing our history as someone who has done extensive work to reveal history through your book what what do you think the dangers are of that like what where where do you think that we as a society will be impacted by these efforts if made successful, you know, where do you you think they'll hit us most? If that makes sense. Oh my goodness. Um, it's, I'm like, I'm gathering myself for this answer because I was, I was talking on my Instagram stories today, actually about, Mm -hmm. about Ron DeSantis and his successful passing of the banning of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the ripple effect, and, and not just that, I mean, of, of like you said, of, ev- of everything that's going on. And I've, I've, I've written this before. We are, in, we are in the midst of one of the biggest white supremacist backlashes in our history. Yes. And, and that, is the his- that is the cycle, okay? History repeats itself. If you look at every single time any marginalized body has and but but I would say most most specifically or 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 um or more often I'll say um black people because we know this is rooted in anti-blackness but mm-hmm. anytime the black body has has either advanced or exposed we have the backlash of white supremacy um and because every other system of oppression is rooted in white supremacy and stems from white supremacy. So that be um, misogyny, that be sexism, that be heterosexism or homophobia, that be transphobia, all those things are rooted, rooted in anti-blackness. Um, anytime, same thing, there is going to be um, advancement and success and acceptance and welcoming of another version of humanity that is that is just as beautiful as what we've been told is the only beautiful version of humanity there's going to be a backlash this is nothing new um yeah. so you just look look through the look through history you'll see the bat you'll see the cycles of backlash you'll see when in, when 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 the um when our enslaved ancestors were were free you saw the backlash um and how reconstruction barely lasted because of white supremacists so yeah. um this is nothing new. That said, um, this is this is this is one of the the most 
dangerous ones, I, I feel. And I, I, it's, sometimes I feel like it's hard to say that because I'm like, we look at history, look how bad that was. Like, oh, you know, it can't get worse than that. But it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just as dangerous. It's just different because it's modern, so to speak. Um, but I, 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 I unfortunately feel like we are going to continue to take several steps backwards before we begin moving forward again. Hmm. Um, and that, that deeply saddens me. Like I'm filled with emotions speaking about this right now, which is why I'm like gathering myself as I talk about it, because I'm, I don't want to admit that I'm afraid because I speak so much about being hopeful and my book is written in the premise of there still being hope and how to find that and how to, and, and what we can do to, mm-hmm. to, to actually make a difference where we are. But at the same time, I am human and I am afraid. I'm afraid for, for the, um, the expansion of this and, and how spe- specifically, if you want to talk specifics, you know, bringing it back to the, to the ban of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the state of Florida and that potentially getting expanded um, elsewhere, which we know is coming, that takes away the safe spaces for all marginalized bodies that we, we wouldn't have to create the safe spaces in the first place if you didn't do this to us, yeah. right? We wouldn't need the safe spaces, but we ha- what we do, we can't erase what happened. Trying to erase what happened from the classroom and, and, and from talking about it doesn't actually erase the fact that it happened. Right. Doesn't erase the fact that we need safe spaces as marginalized people because because existing in society as a whole is not a safe space for us. Yeah. And you're taking those safe spaces away because you are afraid and you want power and control. I'm gutted by all of this. And not just that, of course, it's, it's everything. It's the banning of books. It's, it's, it's the anti-trans laws. It's everything. It guts me because we know who's not going to be affected by this, yeah. you know, but I, but I, but, and we know who will be deeply affected by this, but I also say, because I, and one of the biggest things I want to make sure that everyone understands from my work is that white supremacy does affect us all. So I, I should actually take that back. They will be affected. They won't know they're being, they won't be affected like we are. My thing is that white supremacy does affect everybody because look at how mentally unwell and well these people are like, that's not you. You can't tell me you're not being affected by white supremacy when you look at the the behaviors and the and the attitudes and the and the character of the people that are doing this. That's that's being affected negatively by this. You just don't see it. Okay, you don't see it. You're a broken human. You know what I'm saying? We're all yeah. broken by this. We're all affected by this. Okay. Yes. I, and that's why I say in the, in the beginning of my book, I say this, this book is written for everybody is written for the white person, the black person, the gay person, the trans person. It's written for everybody because we are all equal, not equally, excuse me. We are all unequally affected by white supremacy, but we are all affected by it. Yes. Marginalized bodies will always be affected the most, but it's not white supremacy is not a problem for marginalized people that white people just need to sit back and say, man, that sucks. No, we are all negatively impacted by white supremacy. The aspects of, of of white supremacy culture that keep it thriving. And in, in my view, some of it is that 
the, a lack of shifting from mere sympathy to empathy. Mm-hmm. I'm sad for you to go through that versus let let tell me what it's like to put on and walk in your shoes. And even though it doesn't fit my narrative, let me accept what you're telling me because you have to live there. Like, and then, and then I make your problem, my problem because I'm hearing you. Yes. Like those, those things are, I, I'm, I'm going to say they seem like they are on life support and recent memory. Yeah. And so I think about it this way too. When you remove knowledge from folks or the opportunity to learn, you put people um, in a state of ignorance that will be rewarded. Yes. So you could essentially go through now a history class in these states that are banning DEI, banning all these different things, banning CRT, but have no idea what it is. Like Mm -hmm. all of these efforts, you could get an A in that class and then have the mark that you have done it well and Mm -hmm. still be ignorant Mm -hmm. of so much more. So now we're not only um, saying, hey, these things are removed, but now we're rewarding ignorance. So when people have an ignorance that is rewarded and reinforced, it is that much more, um, it's harder to fight almost. I think about it this way. Uh, I remember watching the movie Higher Learning. Have you seen that? I haven't. In Higher Learning, uh, Ice Cube, uh, Omar Epps, Tyra Banks, like these are some of the key. uh, Lawrence Fishburne was a professor. Um, Why haven't I seen this movie? That's the question right there. Go back. <laughs> let me, let me, let me moment, go back and, and write, that down. write that down so I don't, you know, I clearly need some, some, my own education because where was I? Probably being shielded by stuff from my mom, let's be real. Anyway. It's, and, and listen, I could see why, <laughs> what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> so in this, in this movie, you see there are two sides to this college experience. Um, this one, uh, white gentleman, um, I forget the gentleman's name who, 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 who plays him. I see him all the time on Fox sports. He talks sometimes he's like a star that they bring in and things like that. So he, he comes in and he gets rejected by people. He's kind of an outcast. And so he kind of goes to this white terrorist organization becomes a skinhead he's and and so he's trying to get to power because he knows what it's like to be in his view powerless he's been excluded he's not accepted by his own and so he kind of goes to the extremes to try to get this power mm-hmm. and through the indoctrination of it all he takes that power and the ignorance that he got reinforced with right so now he's He's lashing out at people. He's saying things towards like Ice Cube and and Omar Epps to the point where he takes an assault rifle, goes up on a roof and shoots people and basically kills Tyra Banks in the movie. Um, Hmm. Sorry. Spoiler alert. Hmm, Um, I'm okay with spoilers. It's okay. (laughs) Okay. 
and and my point in bringing that whole thing up is the character that I'm speaking of had a reinforced ignorance that made him believe that he was justified with every pull of the trigger. And when you see him kind of uh, meet his demise and all the things at the end, you see how even in the response of police officers and things like that, it was still coddled and reinforced and, and all of those things. Now, if we look at these things ideologically, it makes so much more sense why certain people are who pass through our world unaffected or seemingly unaffected. Because, again, what we do is we reward the ignorance of people. We reward the the people who aspire to to um, hoard power in these ways, who look a certain way, who apply these standards. We, we reinforce it to the point and the people who have been trying to get unplugged from the matrix, to use that analogy. Well, now we're going to remove the opportunity to learn any differently. Mm-hmm. So what we've done is accelerated the learning of 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 the dominant culture of white supremacy culture and folks by removing the alternative. Yes. Yep. And now I think about that as an educator, as a as a school leader. I think about that in my schools mm-hmm. and the effect that that has, because I'm going to teach kids the truth. Full stop. Mm-hmm. But what if when I teach kids the truth? And I show them historically how these things have merit. They go out to a world where now to get that college degree, they got to deny the truth that they know. Oh, my God. Those are the things I think of. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Gave me chills. So, yes. I, I think that there's so much at risk there. Absolutely. And I wonder, I wonder for, our, you know, educators who are listening, who are one who may be at odds with what's happening, feeling powerless, like how do we do, how do we stop? What They feel like this might be one of those moments where things are spiraling out of their control. They're just trying to make it through the, to their school day. They got behaviors rampant because there's so much going on. There's so much trauma that is be, that is not being uh, met with the methods that need to be, right? There's not counseling enough. There's no mental health services. There's a, there's, there's a whole bunch of things wrong with how the system of schooling moves forward. And yet they feel like they're trying to do their best. Mm-hmm. And then they look at the news and it seems all much that much more worse. Mm-hmm. How does one in that place, because I know you talk about this in your book, how does one in that place kind of steady the ship and still know that they're being productive in terms of their moving forward to, 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 to that freedom that you speak of in, in your work? What are some practical things that they can do to kind of steady the ship, if that makes sense? Mm. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is specifically as an educator, I would examine how are you perpetuating white supremacy culture within your classroom? Mm. Because, and I know, I know that's a lot. You're already going through a lot. I get it. But at the same time, when you decide to be a disruptor, That's the freedom. For example, do you have hierarchies in your classroom Mm -hmm. in ways that students can be, and you could not even realize you're doing it. And this is not to shame because it's the way we've been taught to do things, right? It's the way we've been taught. And I get it. There can be schools and principals and administrators who are telling you, you have to do these things. But if that were the case, 
in a, in a school that I was working in, excuse me, I would straight up tell my students, I'm being told I have to do this, but this, this is, this is irrelevant. This is irrelevant. We're, we're, mm-hmm. we're because I, I want to, because I care so much about you and I want to make sure I'm staying your teacher, I'm going to be complicit in this. However, there is no hierarchy in this classroom. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, how can you reframe grades so that your students can understand that this is not a measure of worth, that not a measure of your intelligence? You know what I'm saying? Um, all those things that we normalize in the systems, how can you be, even if it's something small, be a disruptor in that and, and help you and your students realize that the power, because we've, we've talked about power so much and I've thought about, I've been, I've been racking my brain as we've been talking and, 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 and thinking about this is, I feel like this is, this is like the next book or something like that to really help us understand, okay. like <laughs> to help us understand the human need for power. And it, because, because human, human needs, I, I, I don't like how in quickly kind of bring church into it and bring it right back because I don't want, but it's you know, right. in, 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 in like church culture, it's very much like, well, just, you know, the powers in Jesus and just leave it there. But we still haven't examined why as humans do we feel this need for power? And is mm. it that the actual power itself is the issue or is it the way that we are looking for that power or how we're defining that power or whatever that may be? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you can either like like in the movie that you're describing, feel powerless and then go search for it in this extreme harmful way that that clearly is doing nothing, no good for anybody. Yep. Or you can discover how much power you have within yourself because of just how worthy you are in your own being of who you are. How can you help your students find that power? within themselves that they don't have to search for in any other way, but just by being unapologetically them. What does that look like? And be unapologetically yourself. What does that look like for you and your students? Yeah. And I, and as I'm, I'm a home educator now and I, and I'm not saying this is easy, but it's something that I have to wrestle with every day. Every day I feel like I don't have power. I'm like, oh my gosh, my house is out of control. I don't have any power. My kids are out of control. They control me. I'm I'm a nobody. I'm just here. Like, who am yeah. I? I? I don't I don't exist. Nobody cares about me. I'm alone. Like, believe me, my mind spirals. Yeah. Right? And that's all because I feel like I have lost my power in those moments. But yeah. it's that I've lost my power or is that I'm defining power incorrectly. Right? And then I need to redefine redefine what, what is, what is, what is power in for, So for my faith, what is Jesus telling me that power is for your faith? What does that look like for you? Because I am faith inclusive. If you're not a Christian, if you're not anyone of faith, however you get, however you connect with your spirit and your soul, what does that look like? What, what, what is the healthy um, definition of power for you and understanding that you already have it within yourself? You know, yeah. That that power reframe is is I think key. And you know, you mentioned you mentioned grading. You know, I used to be to 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 you know make it even 
more practical for folks who may be listening. I used to be the starch, like you don't do it. You get a zero. Mm -hmm. That used to be me. And I came from a place of, I need my students to be accountable, right? In my mind, I need them to be accountable to turning work in on time to meeting deadlines. Why is that important? Because they're going to have to grow up in a world where they have to do X, Y, and Z. And it wasn't until later on that I realized that essentially I was grading for privilege. Mm. That if I give them an assignment and I say, please take this home, please do these things, that at that moment, I'm submitting them to uh, the inequities in their world. Yeah. That student A could go home and have all the things necessary, have stable Wi-Fi, have uh, a computer or the provided Chromebook uh, that we got from all the COVID money in their house. They could have um, a place to work and space in their house to do that. They could have parents that help them, but I could give it to student B and student B has to go pick up their younger siblings. Their mom works two shifts because mm -hmm. they're trying to, you know, put things together for the family. And, and now I'm giving student B that zero because they didn't turn it in on time. And at the end of the day, what is a grade supposed to do? It's supposed to measure what you know, right. not necessarily your privilege in your world, but what do you know? And they should be in a constant state of refinement. They should not be a final determination. You should allow students to grow with the curriculum, with what you're, with your teaching. You should allow them the opportunity to continue to grow and evolve. But no, I was a starch zero and a zero was a death sentence because even after they got that zero, it's late. Now, if, I, if they turn it back in, I'll give them some partial credit. But you know what that did to their grade? If they had an 87, they were going down to a 56 and they had to do a whole lot to try to come back for that. And it wasn't so much later that I realized the error of my ways. What was I doing there? I was reinforcing a standard that was not made for the students that I taught. Correct. And, and reinforcing that standard, I was saying that this is the most important thing. I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care what the hand you've been dealt. You turn in things on time. Why? Because I am your teacher and I'm in power. I'm in control here. Mm -hmm. I would have never said it that way. Yeah. But that's exactly how I ran my classroom. Mm -hmm. So I think about grading. Not only that, I think about behavior. I have... I stepped into the APC this year and I'm being honest with you. I've probably been cursed at or cursed out more times than I can count this year. Mm -hmm. And I think people feel like, Oh, you're the assistant principal. You have this title. So therefore you need to walk around in a certain level of authority. You need to walk around with a certain level of power and kids need to, they need to, be fearful of you like that's what you need to do and one i don't know if you've seen these kids today they're not they're not they're not worried about your little title <laughs> they, they don't care they finally figured I, it out like yeah. these titles don't matter <laughs> they don't matter who do you think you are right you right. you 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 wake up just like i do you put on one pant leg at a time just like i do like they mm -hmm. that's their their thing yes. and so going back to your point and I want to kick it back to you 
when we talk about reframing power, we're ultimately inviting teachers, educators, leaders on what I call a journey to disrupt. Yeah. How do we disrupt the things that we are seeing that aren't serving us and aren't serving our students? Here's the problem, though, and this is where I want to kick it to you. To ask somebody to disrupt is asking them to put some lay something on the line. Even yeah. if it's just a moment's comfort. So if I'm an educator who hears you and it's like, yeah, I hear you. That makes sense. I need to change that or I could do this, but fill in the blank. And I have that in my in my mind. What, what advice could you give me to help navigate beyond that? Does that make sense what I'm saying? It does. Man, you and these heavy questions. <laughs> um. Mm, cause I, because I feel like I should heavy is not the word, um, layered, layered is the yeah. word because that fill in the blank could be so many things and that's yeah. going to change the answer. Um, but let's, you know, let's say for example, it's, it's the moment of discomfort. Yeah. Right. That's, that's a, that's a more simple one to go with because your job's not on the line or something like that. Um, right. and I, believe me, I get it. And I'll, I'll, I'll tackle that as well to the best of my ability. But I mean, I, I look at it even, um, in my, in my own life, um, or even with the things that I, I used to do with my students. When I say my own life, I was saying with my, my kids were the things that I even used to do with my students. You know, I, I had this conversation. I'm, okay. I'm sorry. I'm going in my, my brain went whoop in two different directions. Let me bring it to one place. I had this conversation with my daughter the other day and we were talking about, why I chose to take all of the toys out of our home that have noises and flashes and all that. We, I did that like a few, like when, they, when she was two, when my, when my youngest was a baby, I have two, two girls and they're six and four now. Um, and uh, so my six year old is, is very inquisitive and we're having all these questions. She's trying to figure out like, you know, what, what was life like when I was two? And, and I told her, we kind of just fell into this conversation about how I took the toys, certain toys away because I was working um, a different job at the time, working from home, and I wanted to really train her to be able to use her imagination and freely play without without falling into the I'm being entertained default that a lot of culture today with the way we treat children mm -hmm. is with all of the toys mm -hmm. that entertain them, right? We look yeah. at look at the majority of, of kids these days, and it's not I'm not saying this to judge. I'm saying that this is what we've been conditioned to, right? Yep. All of the toys make noise and, and do the thinking and do the playing for the child. And therefore, if a child's not being constantly entertained, then they're bored, they're overstimulated. So they have a lot more, a lot, a lot harder of a time managing their emotions and things of that nature, thinking clearly, um, et cetera. And so we talked about that and I told her how it would have been easier to just have you watch screens and, and, and play on the iPad more often when I was working it would have been easier. Absolutely. You would have been quiet. I would have been able to get my work done. Boom. I wouldn't have had any issues because they were even asking me the other day. I, I'm very honest with them. And they were like, mom, why did you have kids if you wanted to work? Because <laughs> I'm working and I'm like, I, I need time to work. And they're like, well, but we're here. And I'm like, that's okay because we're going to do both and we're going to make it work. And we're going to explain this to you. And I, I'm very honest with them. And so I explained to them, like, I, I'm not here for easy because easy is easy is going to allow for short-term comfort, but long-term unrest, hmm. right? Hmm. 
because I dealt and believe me when I took certain toys away and I started to train my two-year-old how to play independently, mind you, she's two, two and a half. This was not, an, it wasn't all of a sudden she was like, da, 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 blocks. This is so cool. What? No, she threw so many fits. She didn't want to be in her room. She didn't want to play a certain way. She wanted mommy. I had a call. It was not easy. I had to constantly redirect her. Every time she'd come out of her room, I would just redirect and say, nope, it's time for your room time right now. Nope, it's time for room time right now. It was not easy. There were so many days where I didn't get anything done because I was just redirecting to her room. And not, and, and not in an authoritative way, but just saying, it is room time right now so we all can have time to ourselves because this is what's healthy for us. You know, I understand that as an educator, someone who is, in, in, who is in, um, responsible for children, there is a certain level of control you need to have. I get that. Right, children are right. not adults. They're not supposed to be. So when we talk about leveling the power field here. We're not talking about letting your children have all the control, yeah. so to speak, because you are still responsible for the culture of your classroom. You're responsible for making sure everyone is safe and doing things in an effective manner. You know, but how are you teaching that, right? Yeah. Are you succumbing to those moments to allow for things to be comfortable because it's frustrating right now and because their behavior is expressing that they're not happy. It's okay to be unhappy. I get it. This is really difficult. How can I make this easier for you? Let's work together on this. As an educator, I understand, right, that you need control to in a, in, in a certain level, I guess you could say, of power in your classroom to be able to to be able to create the culture that you desire for your students. But like you were saying, right, your, your power was, was misguided, right? So in the case of, of, my, of my child, I'm choosing to, to do something so uncomfortable, so uncomfortable that took so much time to be able to create a certain type of culture. I had, I had to undo things that I had done. That's the kind of the point that I'm getting at. I had to undo things that I had done undo things that I had allowed into our home to create one type of culture and then to, to then undo it and then build another type of culture. These things did not happen overnight. My child now doesn't even remember that this happened. She knows now our, our culture and our home. She knows don't ask mommy for a toy that lights up. Ha! And she'll look at these things at Target and I'll, and, she, and I'll be like, Avery, like, I know, mom, I know we don't get things that light up. I'm just looking at it, but I know that our toys are better. I'm like, okay, great. But in all seriousness, it took years to create that culture, you know, yeah. but the, but the outcome has been so worth it because now we, and I'm not saying things are perfect, but my daughter knows how to play for long periods of time and her imagination soars when she mm. plays. It is beautiful. And when people see her play and know how long she plays, they are amazed at what she's able to create and do because all of her toys were specifically curated to create a certain level of creativity in her mind. Right. So that, that's obviously not the same exact thing, but that was an example of how I had to undo a culture get uncomfortable, not go for what was easy to create the culture that I desired and that I knew was going to be best for us both and make sure while I was doing that, mm -hmm. that I was approaching her as an equal partner in this. Mm -hmm. even, even though I was the parent, even though I was redirecting her, 
I was redirecting as she was my partner. How can I partner with you to help make this transition easier? So that that looked like her requesting that she listen to music while she was playing in her room. We don't do it anymore, but when she was younger, she needed something to keep her company. That made sense. We tried different things because I was approaching her as a partner, yeah. right? So, in, so for the example in the classroom where maybe, you, maybe you're realizing that you need to approach your students more as a partner, but in doing so, you're going to have to undo some harm that may have been caused. You're going to have to rebuild some trust. You're, 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 yeah. going to, you're going to see the pushback and the behavior before you see the reward because their behavior is their way of communicating an unmet need. Yes. I hear you. I see that you have an unmet need. I didn't meet that need. And that's my job as your educator to make sure your needs are met. Tell me what I need to do. Okay. That's how you level that, that playing field, so to speak, and that hierarchy in your classroom without, so to speak, losing your position of, I don't want to say authority, but but the trusted adult that they have, that they're still supposed to trust and, and respect and, and understand that you are still the, the adult in the classroom, right? So I, I hope that that helps. Now, I understand that there's other fill, fill in the blanks, though. I get that, right? Yeah. That could be, it could be something that is a little bit more um, on the line with your job. I, I, yeah. and, and, and same thing, right? It's, it's one of those situations where it's like, I can't give a tangible response. Like, here's what you can specifically do in your classroom. But if I were in your shoes, I would be asking myself, well, what is in my control? Yep. Right? What can I do? And if there's something that is outside of my control, like just say, for example, standardized testing, right? Mm -hmm. So in my book, I talk about the history of standardized testing. The history of standardized testing is actually rooted in eugenics, specifically yep. racist eugenics, right? So understanding that and understanding why it was created, understanding that standardized tests are created with specific biases, how am I helping my students prepare for this with that lens? How am I, you know, um, connecting with my students and, and, and meeting them where they are in an honest way that doesn't tell them that this test is, is, is their measure of worth or intelligence? Helps them understand that while we there's, this is something that we shouldn't have to do, we have to do it because there are things in life that we do have to do. And mm -hmm. we can either choose to conquer that thing, even if we don't agree with it, because we don't want it to win, right? We can look at it like a challenge and we can do mm -hmm. that thing together while still mm -hmm. understanding that it's not the most important thing, you know, and, 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 and approach it that way. And then when you're practicing for these tests and you're doing those practice questions, how are you helping your students relate to that material, understanding the biases that are, that are at play here um, and being honest with them as much as you can in an, in an age appropriate manner in that scenario. Right. Um, that could be an example of something that you can do that's within your control because at the end of the day, your administration wants the results, right? But maybe you don't get the results the way that they're, they're suggesting you get them. Maybe you go at it in a, in a decolonized way that ends up blowing everyone out the water. That's an example. If I could jump in here, I think, I hope that the disruptors listening are getting, you know, the things that you're saying. I think about it when you were in the classroom, you have an, you have an opportunity to steward 
the perceived, believed, or even fabricated power that you have. You have an opportunity to steward that. Mm -hmm. What you do with power in your classroom will either reinforce or or show a better way for how students should be dealing with the same things. How they're, how they're conceptualizing these things. I remember when I used to go and bowl for the first time, first few times, actually. Every time I would bowl, that thing went straight to the gutter. I don't care how hard I tried. I would try really hard to get it down and hit these pins. And sometimes I get a few on the right. But <laughs> inevitably, I was going to get somewhere near the gutter, if not in the gutter. But they had this wonderful invention called bumpers. I know. Those things are awesome. (laughs) They would blow these bumpers up and they put them in the gutter. And all they served as guardrails to get us to our destination. Mm -hmm. They redirected us if we went too far to the right or if we went too far to the left. But they kept us on the path. They didn't stop us from moving. They showed us how to move. I think educators are given that opportunity. Mm, Yes. So much of power and how we conceptualize power is that I need to meet force with force. In other words, to do that means I'm going to stop your movement. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stop where you're going Mm -hmm. versus let me steer you in a direction that's going to help you get to where you want to go. Let me show you how to best get there. It was so prevalent in terms of just the bumpers that there was this little line on the bumpers and uh, and we as kids started to learn that if we hit the bumper right there it would go right to the pins we wanted and give us a strike more times than not (laughs) i hope that educators are hearing from you be a bumper help redirect the thing though is as a guardrail you stand in the gap for others and you kind of lay your power down in some ways. You're not the authority. You're not the authoritarian. You're not the dictator in the classroom. No, but you, you help curate an experience Mm -hmm. that invites people on a journey to get to their destination. Right. And I hope that our educators are hearing that from you because I think that's been really, really insightful. Well, you put it in a much more just beautiful way. (laughs) So to summarize my long-winded answer, be a bumper. That's much more eloquent and um, illustrated. But but in all seriousness, yes, I absolutely, 100%. For folks who are uh, tapping in and this is their first time hearing you, being connected to... uh, your brilliance. Where can folks get in touch with you? How can they support you? And where can they go get your book? <laughs> well, you can connect with me on Instagram. That's pri- my primary place I hang out um, at Caroline J. Sumlin. Um, my website, carolinejsumlin.com. Everything is Caroline J. Sumlin to make it really simple. Um, Twitter at Caroline J. Sumlin. Um, and to get more information about my book, you can click the book tab on my website or just go to carolinejsumlin.com slash book. 
And all the information about what the book is about, how to pre-order is right there. And we also have some pre-order bonuses right now as well. So if you order any time between now and the day before release, which is July 25th, so July 24th would be the last day that you'd be eligible for a pre-order bonus, um, you will get a, a book club discussion guide, a, a guided journal, and the free um, a, a free copy of the audiobook that will be narrated by me as well. Um, so you'll get two of those things, and you and um, right now, whether you pre-order the book or not, you can also read the first two chapters for free. That's also available on my website. Um, so, uh, but if you pre-order, you'll also get the the the, the bonuses sent to you minus the audiobook because that won't be ready until release that will be sent to you separately um but you'll also get the, the the first few chapters to begin reading now which is pretty cool um you just have to fill out a little form you know put your little order number in there it's right there on my website hit hit the little click and it'll get sent to you um and yeah i think i think that's that's about it that's where you can find me <laughs> awesome awesome i hope folks do tap into your to your work uh you know we have been in community for some time now mm -hmm. and you are consistently one of the people that I, I go back to. Um, you're insightful. Um, you're thoughtful. Um, you help me become a better thinker. So I appreciate mm -hmm. your work and I Likewise. appreciate, uh, I appreciate what you're doing and folks, you know, my educators out there who are listening, please get this book, add it to your collection, put it on your summer reading list. And uh, yeah, man, let's let's continue to disrupt because our kids need it. Our world needs it. So good. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor to be here. Um, any any final thoughts before we close out? Anything to, you know, as we we're having this discussion to educators as the work that you do, any any final thoughts? No, I think one of the biggest things that always I always feel the need to remind people is that you deserve your liberation. You deserve freedom. Um, so much of our struggle with worthiness, bringing it back to that, um, is is that we don't feel like we deserve it, and we do. You don't have to do anything to earn it. Just as you are, you deserve to love yourself. You deserve to find yourself so worthy. Um, we all do. Your students do. And there's something we have to do to earn that. So I think that's something that kind of keeps coming back with most of the people that I interact with in my community is this struggle with feeling like you even deserve that. And I struggle with it too. I really do. Um, even though I something I teach on, I still struggle every single day with whether I deserve this or not. Um, we all deserve it. And when you, when you uh, understand just how much we deserve to live and walk in liberation it makes you that much more hungry to fight for it i can't think of a better way to end <laughs> so thank you of course